you're able, would you please join me as we, as we read in standing? This morning's parable comes from Luke chapter 15. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let's eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The word of the Lord.
You're not as far as you think. Is that better? And that very much is the message of the parable of the prodigal son, the parable that we're considering this morning, that you have not gone too far and it's not too late to come back. But part of the message, if we understand the parable of the prodigal son rightly, is that you, at the same time you've probably gone farther than you think. Right? You've gone farther than you think, but it's still not so far that God cannot extend his grace to you. The parable of the prodigal son is easily one of the best-known parables of the New Testament, and it is one of the rare places that if you go to it, you get a strikingly clear glimpse of the gospel as a whole. It's one of the places, if I was dialoguing with someone who was interested in Christianity but didn't know very much about it, the parable of the prodigal son is one of the first places I would turn. Because if you understand what's happening in the context of this story then you understand much of the story of redemption. You have the the main points down. That's the kind of import that the story has. But it is, as uh, in part perhaps because it is one of the best-known parables, it is also one of the most often misinterpreted parables. Right, just consider the title. The parable of the prodigal son. Right, The title in your Bible is not inspired. It's not part of God's Word. It's been assigned to that story. But Jesus begins telling the parable by saying there was a father who had two sons. And each son gets equal attention in the text. So why do we name the parable for one of the sons and neglect the other? Perhaps it's because we like the story about the first son and we don't care as much for the story about the second son. It's only when you hold both stories in tension that you begin to actually understand the parable. In fact... As we see as we'll work through this story, really the son that's in the the crosshairs of Jesus in telling this parable is the older son, not the younger one. He's in a far more dangerous place, and that Jesus is trying to address that kind of person in the telling of the parable. So let's jump in and try to understand the story as it's unfolding and draw some applications out of it. The, uh, The first thing that we need to consider are the two sons, how they're going about life and the repercussions of the decisions that they've made. The first son decides to go to his father and say, you know, I'd like my share of the inheritance. There are things in the world that I want to go see and do, and I need to be equipped financially to do that. Can you make that happen for me? Now, what you need to understand is the younger son's request to the father is scandalous. It is shameful. It is disrespectful. In an ancient Near Eastern culture, it would have been an unbelievable insult. A person's inheritance came at the time of the death of the father. So to go and to ask for the inheritance is essentially like saying, you know, let's not get bogged down in details and formality. Let's just assume you're dead. Let me have my share of the inheritance and I'll move on. And what the son is deciding to do to turn his back on his family, to turn his back on his tradition is not really a forgivable offense. He is burning all of his bridges. This is not something you do if you have any intention of returning home. The younger son is intending to set out, is not looking back, and doesn't intend to ever come home. So he goes out into a far country, enjoys himself perhaps for a little while. His money runs out. A famine descends on the land. He doesn't know what to do. He's penniless. He's starving. He ends up 
feeding pigs for a Gentile, right? Because Jews aren't farming pigs, right? It is the worst of the worst job. If you rank the 500 jobs in uh, Israel that you would like to have or at least like to have, number 500 would be feeding pigs. Not only that, but he's so hungry, he longs to eat the food that he's supposed to feed to the pigs. And so he comes to his senses, really. He wakes up. He says, what am I doing? If I returned home to my father and simply aspired to be a servant in his house, then I would be better off than I am right now. And so he decides to head home, humiliated, shamed, singing. And he, you know, look at the way he phrases going home. He's going to say to his dad, I'm not worthy to be your son. He knows that he has forsaken the right of being called a son. And so he returns home expecting to simply be made a servant. Now, the only thing more surprising than the son's scandalous request is the father's ridiculous response. In the ancient Near East, the father, the patriarch of a family, was, was the godfather. Right? He is the kingpin. He is not someone who disgraces himself by humiliating himself by, in a show of emotion or by running toward an offended party or by forgiving great insult to his house lightly. This isn't something that you would do. What you would expect in the story, if you were hearing it in its context, was he stands on the porch or maybe he waits in his office and he makes the sun stand outside in the heat for a few hours. And then he invites him in And he lets the son grovel. And he says, you have brought great shame and insult upon this house. You will have to work for the next 15 years to repay your debt. Join your place with the servants. That would have been a very normal reaction. That's the expected reaction in the context of the story. But you don't get the expected. You get quite the opposite. Because the father comes out and he runs down the road to the son. Hikes up his robes. He's so delighted that he is returning. And he uh, showers him with kisses. And for whatever speech the younger son has prepared, he's not going to hear it. He's not interested. He simply begins to give orders. Bring the best robe. Put shoes on his feet. Bring a family ring and put it on his finger. And what's being communicated in the symbolism of this is rich and really quite unbelievable. The best robe in the house would have been the father's robe. And so he says, come bring my robe and place it upon him. The ring signified him as part of the family. It restores his sonship. Right? The shoes cover it, the poverty that, he, that he's exposed by his very appearance. And then the father orders that the fattened calf... Now, meat is a rare luxury for the rich in the ancient world. And it's not something that you have on a regular basis. And the fattened calf was saved for the rarest of occasions. Usually only for a wedding. And he says, kill the fattened calf, because we're going to celebrate like never before today. The father is saying to the son, I'm I'm not going to wait or demand that you pay off your debt. It's forgiven. And you're immediately restored to sonship, and my clothes will clothe you, and they will cover up your poverty. And our feast will cover up your your starving belly. It will fill your starving belly. And the ring that I placed on your hand makes it beyond any question that you are restored to sonship. 
You are reinstituted to that place. It's, a, it's an unbelievable display of God's love and affection, right, in the context of the story as, as the Father represents God in one sense. There are those of you who know the shame of the younger son, right? In your life, you, you've done something or you've experienced something that, that continues to fill you with shame. It continues to fill you with embarrassment. And it's the kind of thing that you think to yourself, well, I can't tell that to anybody. And it continues to alienate you from God. And what you need to hear this morning and see this morning is how ridiculous the love of God is. How overpowering and how all-encompassing it is that it would pour over you. And there is nothing so shameful, there is nothing so embarrassing, there is nothing so sinful that cannot be covered by that love. You are never too far away to come home. Well, that's a really beautiful part of the story, right? And aren't you a little bit tempted to end here? Right? As, as many sermons have, all right? And not a few Sunday school lessons have. But we're only halfway through the parable, right? And so we haven't even gotten to the elder brother, and you better believe that we don't really have a good grasp of the parable if we stop here. But the one interesting thing and I meant to say at the beginning there, if, really, I cannot encourage you enough to weigh into the parable of the prodigal son, as we call it. And there are two very good books which pretty much have informed this entire sermon. One is Henry Nowen's The Prodigal Son Returns, I think. And the other is Tim Keller's The Prodigal God. And the neat thing that Tim points out is that prodigal means reckless spending. Right? We sometimes think that a prodigal son means the son who's run away. Or the son who's at out. No, prodigal means to spend recklessly. And so Tim suggests that the parable is better named the parable of the prodigal God, which is the title of his book, because the one who spends the most recklessly, who gives most lavishly away from his riches, is the father. Right? The ridiculous spending of the younger uh, son is trumped by the ridiculous spending of the father in welcoming him home. And that is, that's a great point. It's a better title for the parable. So, the party starts to get underway, right? The fattened calf is slaughtered. The older son comes in from the field and says, uh, what's going on? I hear music. There's dancing. Something looks exciting. And one of the servants informs him, uh, your father has ordered that the fattened calf be killed because your, your brother has come home. You feel the anger, the rage. What, is, what does the older brother say? I haven't gone anywhere. In fact, I've done nothing but obey you and serve this household. And you've never even given me a young goat to be slaughtered so that I could celebrate with my friends. What in the world? What, what's going on here? Why are you celebrating this individual who has gone and squandered all of our money? Not to mention that the return of the younger brother means that the inheritance of the older brother will be reduced considerably. Right? One half is already gone. Now what's left is going to be divided in some ways, so it's going to mean less for the older brother. He says, how can you do this? What? He can't even fathom or understand the love that the father is showing the younger son upon his return. And the father says simply to him, son, everything I have always had is yours. 
But your son coming home is, or your brother coming home is worth celebrating. But don't you just resonate a little bit with the older brother? Right? I mean, you can imagine or perhaps have experienced some situation in your life in which you, uh, you've worked hard, right? You've been diligent and disciplined, and suddenly somebody gets rewarded for something less, or somebody gets appreciated in a way that you should have been appreciated a long time ago, and the frustration in, in that happening. Perhaps even in the church or your own family, you see someone that you feel like God is loving better than you, and you feel like you're being far more obedient than they are. Where does God get off doing that? Isn't the, isn't the older brother in some sense getting the wrong deal? Hasn't he behaved better than the younger brother? And what we see here is, um, or what we need to see here, is that the older brother is actually just like the younger brother. He's just taken a different route. You see, the younger brother went to the father and said, Father, I want you dead, essentially. I want your money. I don't want you. Let me go do what I want to do. The older brother has said, I've been obeying. And he would, if you asked him, he said, would you, are you for the father? And he would say, absolutely, I'm for the father. I obey the father and I celebrate what the father celebrates. But here we see him unable to celebrate what the father is celebrating. He can't share in the joy of the Father, which reveals that he's really not interested in the agenda of the Father. He's more interested in his own agenda, and that agenda is now being threatened, right? Because he believed that his obedience brought him certain things. His obedience would grant him what he wanted, and he wants the inheritance. And so he wants really the Father to be dead too. He doesn't want the Father. If he wanted the Father, he would go and celebrate with the Father. Or he would at least say, this is really hard for me. I don't understand what's going on. But Father, I love you, and I want to love what you love. So help me to understand what's transpiring here. Neither of those things happen. He's left outside of the feast, outside of the party. He can't participate. The older brother, the older son, is just like the younger son. They both don't really care about the father. They want what the father grants to them. The younger son has pursued it in his badness, per se, and the older son has pursued it in his goodness. And here we see that goodness can be just as dangerous as badness. And goodness can help us keep God at arm's length just as effective as badness can. There's a story that helps to illustrate this point, and boys and girls, this will help you perhaps to think about what we're talking about. There was a great king, and uh, the king ruled with justice and goodness over a vast land, and there was one gardener in his kingdom who greatly appreciated his rule. The gardener came to him one day, and he said, King, I love you, and I'm grateful for your rule. I have grown the best carrot that I've ever grown. And I want to give it to you out of gratitude for your rule. And the king was wise and discerned the heart of the gardener. And as the gardener turned to leave, he said, wait, come back. He says, I know that you are a good steward of the earth. And next to your land, I own a vast tract of land. And I want to give it to you so that you will garden it. You will take care of it. And the produce that you, uh, that you make, you can have, and some will come to the court but you will be one of the official gardeners of the king's court. And of course, the gardener is overwhelmed. 
with gratitude. He's honored, and so he gives thanks. But there's a nobleman standing in the king's court, and he says, wow, you get all that for a carrot. So the next day, the nobleman comes in leading a grand black stallion, one of the best of his horses, and he leads it to the king, and he says, king, I think you are wise, and I appreciate your rule. You are good and kind, and I wanted to give you this black stallion simply as a sign of my gratitude to what you've done. And the king says, great, thanks, you're dismissed. And he begins to walk away, and the king, seeing that the nobleman couldn't understand what had just transpired, he holds him up, and he says, he says, listen, the gardener who brought me the carrot yesterday brought me the carrot. You brought yourself the horse. And he was dismissed. But how often is that our story? That we bring something to God just like the older brother is bringing his obedience to the father. What is that obedience about? What is your obedience about? Is it simply about giving a gift to yourself that you would receive? Right? Is it all about what you get from the father rather from actually experiencing the father? You know, how remarkable. In both cases, the love of the father is unprecedented. You think the love of the father is just showered upon the younger son, but it's not. It's showered upon the older son as well. When the older son stands outside the party and refuses to come in, he makes public comment on the, the work of the father, on the party. Right? It's really almost as scandalous. He's saying, I don't approve of what my father and the household is doing. I'm not going to participate. And he exercises judgment in that fashion. It's, it would be a complete embarrassment in an ancient Near Eastern culture to be throwing the biggest party of your entire family's life and your son won't participate. That's a massive insult. And yet, what does the father do? He goes to him just like he went to the younger son and entreats him. He says, no, everything I have is yours. Please come in and celebrate with us. Don't stand outside. And yet, it's interesting that older brother, does he go in and celebrate? We don't know, do we? Jesus ends the parable as a cliffhanger, right? which is one of the reasons you know that his real target audience is the older brother, not the younger brother. And we realize that when we go back to the beginning of chapter 15, and you can look if you have your Bible. Chapter 15 in Luke has three parables. All three parables are about something lost and something found. And they're all in response to uh, 15, 1 and 2 in which Jesus is teaching, and this is the way that Luke frames it. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so the tax collectors, the sinners, are gathering with Jesus and hearing from him, and the Pharisees and the scribes are scandalized by this notion. They can't can't understand what's happening. They can't believe that Jesus, if he's a holy man, would participate with these gross outsiders. And so Jesus tells the three parables and ends up with this third parable about the parable of the prodigal son, which targets the older brother. And what Luke would have for us and all the Gospels would have for us is that it is far more dangerous to be the older brother because the older brother doesn't realize that he's sick. The older brother doesn't look for healing. You've got two beautiful pictures in Luke 15, 11 through 32, of two basic approaches to life. Do you not? 
Right? Do you not see these approaches to life played out all around you and in your own heart? On the one hand, you've got the younger brother who isn't just, you know, in one sense he's hedonistic. He's going to pursue pleasure. But you have to see that he, he doesn't like his life. He hates his story. Right? Why else would he totally disown his family and go to a far country? He says, I don't want any part of my dad or my family or my older brother or their tradition. I'm going to go and make my own way. I'm going to realize who I am by exploring who I am in a new context. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Right? It's this notion of self-realization. And over here, you have the older brother who says, you don't do whatever you want to do. The way that you live in this world is to honor family and tradition. Right? That's what's expected of you, and that's how you grow, and that's what makes the world go round, is keeping alive those traditions. And each of you know somebody in this camp, or I recognize yourself, right? This camp, the younger brother, right? The artist who moves to New York or L.A., the black sheep of the family, right? Someone who's always complaining about people talking about family and tradition. Quit, quit Quit boxing me in. I'm going to go figure out who I am. And on this side, you have uh, the right most firstborns. Right? You, you live to honor family. You do what you're supposed to do. You live in the midst of tradition. Right? I can hear uh, Fiddler on a Roof. Tradition? Traditionalists. Right? And that's the notion over here. And the traditionalists... Right? The people who value family and think and identify really by a cause or a story. Um, they say, you know, the problem with the world is the people over there. It's the people who think they can go do their own thing and waste money and don't contribute anything to society. Right? They're the problem. If everybody was over in this camp, the world would be a much better place. And the people over here say, you know, the problem with the world is those people. Right? If they would quit pretending that they possess truth with a capital T and expecting all of us to conform to their truth and respected each of us as individuals, then the world would be a much better place. Where do you land? Right. Who, which one do you have a bigger problem with? That'll tell you which camp you're in. Or perhaps you go back and forth, right? A little bit, I need to be independent. I need to be self-actualized. I need to find out what makes me special. But then you feel a little bit guilty, perhaps, by pursuing that, and you come over here and like, oh, I need to be committed to tradition and the church and family. I've got to serve some time over here. And then that gets really old and burdensome, and so you move back over here and back and forth. Right? You live in the middle. Right? A few weeks ago, the Ashley Madison list was made public. Ashley Madison was the website that helped to facilitate uh, married people having an affair. It was expected that the Sunday after the Ashley Madison list was revealed that up to 400 pastors would resign. What, what are they doing? They live under a guise of tradition and family and church. I'm going to say and do all the right things, older brother. But where I'm really going to find life is as a younger brother when nobody's looking in a secret place. And back and forth we go. The problem with both sides is they don't go anywhere, right? Ultimately, you, you're in a dead end. And so over here, you can spend on your pleasures, but your pleasures are going to demand more and more of you. And eventually, you're going to spend everything you have, and I'm not just talking about money, but everything you have inside of you in your heart, and it's never going to satisfy. 
And over here, you're going to think that your allegiance to a certain cause or to a certain identity that's more noble and truer than yourself is going to grant you what you want, and it's not going to because you're serving it for the wrong reason. And so we find ourselves in Luke chapter 15, 11 through 32, at a terrible impasse. How do you make your way from one to the other? How do you make your way out of this vicious cycle where we so often just bounce back and forth? I'm going to be a younger brother today. I'm going to be an older brother tomorrow or the seasons that we engage in that. The whole story, if you hear it in a Jewish context, is begging for someone to rescue the situation. Right? Notice that the father doesn't actually rescue the situation. He entreats, he shows kindness and mercy to the younger brother, uh, and he goes and entreats the older brother, but there isn't necessarily a relief from these two stories. There's not, um, there's not redemption at least in the sense of what is to prevent the younger brother now redeemed from becoming the older brother? You, you realize that's a huge danger, right? right? What, what's the biggest danger for a younger brother that reaches the end of his rope and repents? That he becomes an older brother. Right? So what the story begs for somebody to enter in, and this is where the Jews probably would have heard it better than we would, because in their context... Who is responsible for the younger brother? The elder brother. The elder brother is the younger brother's keeper. In this sense, the story would have gone better or would have gone in an expected fashion if the elder brother had taken it upon himself to go and pursue the younger brother and bring him back to the family and restore the integrity of the family. And this is where Jesus so artfully leaves the audience wishing for that role to be filled And, of course, it's fulfilled by him, that he is the true elder brother. And he goes and he sacrifices all of his rights and his privileges to make sure that you are clothed and your feet are shod and you are returned rightfully to a place in the family. He brings you back in and showers the love that is represented by the Father. He is actually the tangible aspect of that love that is pictured there as it comes upon you. And so finally, we see that there's freedom. See, I don't, if God loves me so much, if Jesus is going to clothe me and feed me and fill up my, uh, my very soul and make my heart flesh, then I no longer need to pursue pleasure in the ways that I have in the past or think that my identity has to be created because my identity is established in Christ. But I also don't need to adhere to a cause or to pretend to love God for what it grants me because I know that I've already been granted everything in Christ. And I'm suddenly freed from the vicious cycle of the younger brother, older brother paradigm. Well, if I'm freed from that paradigm, where do I go? This is how you begin to realize if you actually get Luke 15, 11 through 32. Sometimes we think that we've moved beyond younger brother, older brother stuff. But you need to weigh your heart in terms of The younger brother will always be fiercely about realizing himself or herself in a certain context. The older brother is always fiercely about what he deserves, what he's earned. And again, we have to remember that the target for this parable is the older brother. It's the Pharisees and scribes who are scandalized by the sinners and the tax collectors having the company of Jesus. And you know you're an older brother if you have a lot of anger. Why are you always angry? You're always angry 
because you are always watching people get what you think you deserve. It makes you angry. You're often bitter. Why are you bitter? You're often bitter because you're not getting what you think you deserve. Right? And God is not delivering what you have earned by your obedience. Anger, bitterness, and your prayer life stinks. You really don't have anything to talk to God about because A, you think you're doing well, and B, you're mad at him because he hasn't delivered what you want. And so the elder brother is a joyless, painful place to be. So again, I hinted a moment ago that to understand 15, 11, 32, to be freed from that cycle, younger brother, elder brother, is what? It's to understand the love of God in Christ, but where does that move you to? It moves you to be the father. If you begin to understand this parable, if you begin to find your identity so securely grounded in Christ that you're freed from base you experience so much joy and pleasure in Christ that you don't need to pursue it in ridiculously empty ways. And you know that you are loving him because he's already given you everything, not because you want to gain something. Then you, your heart becomes like the heart of the Father because you now are enabled to extend real and tangible grace to the younger brothers and older brothers around you. So here's the question. When you run into younger brothers, are you mad? Right? Are you really frustrated? Come on, seriously, again? You've done X, Y, and Z. You've wasted this. You've made this bad decision again. And is it, is it rage? Is it judgment? Or is it the grace of the Father? And I'm not, I'm not saying you let everything go. Please, come on. If you're with me, you understand that we're talking about the heart. Right? And it's not that you free someone up from their consequences, right? but you know the difference between rage and judgment and love and compassion in the midst of those consequences. So you know, brother, and when you meet an older brother, are you really annoyed? Does their complaining and anger and bitterness just grate you down to the degree that you want to be removed from them? Or are you like the father who can go and entreat them and draw them in and pursue them? You see, the Father represents the figure who is so filled up with the grace of Christ that can actually extend that grace outwards to the people who are alienated, who formerly, if you're still caught in this paradigm, you're caught in judgment. You have to judge the other side. you get that? Because the other side threatens what you value. It threatens what you think will save you. If you hate the story you've grown up in and think that your own hedonistic pursuit of pleasure and self-identity and self-actualization is what's going to deliver you, then the people who have the capital T truth and say, get in line, are the people who threaten your very system of salvation. And if you're over here, the people who find their, their, their identity and are free, and, you, and a little part of you says, I hate how free they are. I hate it that they never obey the rules because I'm always obeying the rules. You judge them, you condemn them because they threaten what saves you. It's my obedience that earns me the approval of God. Your system of salvation is threatened. And it's only when you move beyond those in the grace of Christ that you actually know the Father. Elizabeth Elliot used to tell a great little parable. The parable uh, goes like this. Jesus is out with the disciples and they're talking and he's teaching them. And, and Jesus says, listen, uh, Apostles 12, I want you to each carry a stone for me today. 
And uh, Peter is pretty sharp and thinks things through. He says, sure, no problem. And looks around for some time to find the smallest stone that he can. And so they sit down for lunch later in the day. And Jesus says, pull out your stones. And they pull out their stones. And Jesus turns the stones into bread. And Peter's thinking, oh, I didn't get it. I didn't choose well. I don't have very much bread. So the next day, Jesus says, I want you to carry a stone for me today. And Peter's like, I've got it. So he looks around for the largest stone he can carry and goes through the day and uh, has difficulty making it through the day. The only thing that keeps him going is the hope of the massive amount of bread he's going to receive. But at the end of the day, Jesus says, listen, take your stones and throw them in the stream. And Peter's like, what? Uh, this, I, you know, what is the deal? And Jesus says uh, to Peter, don't you remember what I asked you? Who were you carrying the stone for? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you run to us, disheveled and shamed in our sin. Uh, you pursue us. And we thank you that as we uh, sulk outside of the feast, you entreat us to come in. We thank you for uh, Jesus, who is our perfect elder brother, and has pursued us, has brought us out of the far country to be reunited uh, with you and to be returned to a status of sonship. And so as sons and daughters this morning, we celebrate the goodness that you have shown to us and pray that we would go forth from here increasingly freed from the, the, being the younger brother or being the older brother. Free us from that and help us to become more like the Father and show that same grace to the world, grace that is winsome and inviting. Father, forgive us, for when we live out of the place of the younger brother or older brother, we don't have anything compelling to offer the world. Help us to be compelling, because we have been compelled by your love. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.